welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Are you dying of heat or are you okay? No, I'm totally okay. okay actually, good. which is rare. I'm usually, I'm usually dying Schwitzen. of heat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I always, I, the worst is when you're showering and you're still sweating. Yeah, that's terrible. You gotta turn the temperature down. <laughs> that's so horrible. That's what my part <laughs> Like a colder shower, you know? It's the worst. I like get out and I'm still sweating. I'm like, yeah, oh, it's cool. no good. Um, Ryan Shriver, I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, it's it's a huge honor to be giving you the Employee of the Month Award. I'm so uh, appreciate it very much. That's Thank you. That's really, really great. I'm, I feel like Pitchfork, which has actually been around for 17 years, is sort of like the rolling stone of our generation. Is that sure. Fair? I mean, yeah, to an extent. I think, pop, I think uh, Rolling Stone has always been very... Uh, like much more sort of pop culture focused and... Um, and they now do all these political news stories. Yeah, true, which are actually really great. Like Matt Taibbi is, is incredible. He's yeah. probably one of the best political writers there is. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, they've, they always had sort of a more populist kind of mainstreamy kind of approach and we kind of try to value a lot more of the independent underground stuff um, and, and kind of like things that are a little bit left of center. But I think in terms of... of audience and and reach I guess at this point I mean it's it, I think it's sort of valid in its own way <laughs> yeah that that people turn to it and will say I got you know I learned this from pitchfork yeah. but let's I want to start I want to start with you um, what celebrity do people tell you you look like oh you know actually this is funny because um, I've gotten that if somebody was gonna play me in a movie or something like that there was some like talk brief Briefly, I don't even remember what it was about necessarily, but like, um, yeah, I've gotten like Jason Lee, which I think is really funny. Like, what about Tom Cruise? Somebody is, this is actually crazy. Like, I used to go to this uh, post office in Chicago and pick up my mail all the time. There's this woman there, I was convinced I look like Tom Cruise and looked like she was, this other guy was like, yeah, you could be like Tom Cruise's brother or something. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't see it personally. Is it the height? Maybe it's the height. Do you jump around a lot? I do, I like to jump on furniture. Do you do you have a casting agent decide who? Oh no, you're married. So when you when you when you met your wife, did you call CAA and ask them to line up some women? No, we met a long, long time ago. We met in high school. Actually. You didn't meet through a, a no, yeah, CAA unfortunately. Or, or no. I would Morris. like to have that story to tell you, but <laughs> but I, I did hear that you're often compared to to Tom Cruise. Who that, told you this? Where did you hear this? Someone who worked for for Pitchfork, <laughs> and that you like empathized with him because. He would get accosted, and you're like, I know what it's like to get accosted. <laughs> <laughs> I do, actually. Well, that, there, was, uh, there was this band called Joan of Arc in the 90s. Um, actually, I shouldn't name names, but or actually in their last decade. But there was a band that... We won't say it's in the 90s. It could be any decade. It really could be any decade. Anyway, um, yeah, no, I've been, I've been sort of approached. I wouldn't say accosted. I've never been physically assaulted. You know, but um, I definitely have people come up to me occasionally and... and uh, and, and kind of start in on like talking about like the reviews that they got and their scores and the like what the reviewers said. And so it's, it's always like, you know, you're trying to be like diplomatic about things, but at the end of the day, if you're being like totally honest, it's just gonna escalate things, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, you kind of just have to let it lie, you know? But yeah, I think uh, it's... it's uh, Wait, that's very interesting because I feel like if I got a negative review in the New York Times, I don't think I would go up to like Tony Scott and I think I would be so mortified and angry. <laughs> yeah, I think most people most people handle it pretty well. Most people, you know, um, but are, I kind of like about it. that they go up to you. Yeah, I kind of like it too. It, well, it's always interesting to have that discussion, you know. I mean, because 
at the end of the day, things are very subjective, and it's ultimately is you know is is a writer's opinion. And while there is an element to which um, editorially we assign things to people who are kind of like on the same page with where a lot of the staff is sitting with records, you know what I mean? Like there's still an element of you know the individual criticism, um, you know, saying uh, having its own observations and things like that. So well, what does it mean to let's? I mean, let's sort of s step back and say like, what is a music? A critic. What does it mean to be a critic? I think to be a music critic is essentially, um, you know, providing a, a thoughtful analysis of, and and also a very opinion, you know, driven analysis of of you know of, of music, of music that you listen to. And I actually don't believe that there's such a thing as as objective music criticism. Like I think that's kind of you know criticism anyone, is opinion. Does anyone think that? I think yeah, you actually hear it. Well they're not objective. What does that mean? I can be objective with an opinion. Do you know what I mean? Like you can be to an extent, but I think that um, it, that it doesn't really uh, I don't know for the most part that that uh, that there's no really such thing as being objective. There's a there is a parallel I this may be a, a big of a stretch. It's my first time making it, but like I feel like I would never want to see a therapist who hasn't been in therapy, but I also wouldn't want to see a therapist who really wants to be a patient. And by the <laughs> same token, I would love if I'm getting criticized or critiqued, mm -hmm. I want that person to have known what it's like to perform and do my job. Yeah. But I also don't want to have a reviewer who secretly wants to be me. <laughs> right, yeah. No, I think that's safe. And actually, you know, we have writers who are like sort of all over the spectrum in terms of like we have people who are musicians, who've been musicians, um, and, and people who, you know, can't play a single instrument or sing a single note. And um, I think all those, you know. But do they get what it's like to perform? Um, yeah, I think that they, I guess, I would say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether it's, um, you know, is it like, a, like uh, whether, whether it's music specifically or performance of another kind, I mean, you know what it's like to be in front of an audience and, you know, putting yourself out there and putting your art, art, art out there. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it really just has to be down to, you know, wh what you feel about the music and how you interpret it. Because if you're empathizing with an artist too much, it can sort of... Um, what does that you mean to, to empathize a, too much? Kind of keep a critical distance. I, well, you know, if you're empathizing... Um, do we live in a culture where people empathize too much? No, I wouldn't say that <laughs> we do that at all. Like, we, I wouldn't say that's, that's anywhere near the truth. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that if you're just, uh, like, trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes while you're also trying to um, express what their music and what their art means to you, I mean, it's like these, these things are somewhat, somewhat opposed, I feel like. What um, happens when the writing, the quality of the writing about music supersedes the music? Like, sometimes I'll read a review, again, film. Um, Mona Lodargis in the New York Times will write such a funny and smart review, or Emily Nussbaum in the New Yorker, and then I'll go see the show or the movie, and it, it's, like, nowhere near as interesting. Well, this actually happened uh, in the New York Times with the Lindsay Lohan movie, The Canyons. Yes. The, the New York Times Magazine ran this piece that you, I might I read it, seen. yeah. I feel like everybody read that piece, and it was just, like... I mean, a staggering, like incredible work of just like reading um, kind of the entire kind of backstory of the movie is so much more interesting than the movie can ever be, you know? And I really found it was fascinating in that like, in some ways I got kind of everything out of the movie that I hoped to just by reading it, you know? And I think, um, 
I think with criticism to an extent, or even with journalism, that kind of journalism, um, you know, it, it's if something sort of upstages you, is the better work. I mean, that's just sort of fair game, right? I mean, it still makes me want to see. It gives me an interest in seeing the canyons. I was certainly more interested after reading that piece and seeing it than I was beforehand. So, um, you know, it kind of balances out, I think. Are there any reviews you wish you could take back? Oh, yeah. I mean, a couple for me personally. Not like, I mean, in general, like, we really stand by everything we say. But, you know, music is very, like, uh, I always say music is subjective, but it's subjective even, like, on a year-to-year -year basis for people. Like, for me, there's things that, um, that I didn't like at the time. I'll go back and listen to years later. Like what? And, and we'll, we'll kind of come out. And, I mean, there's... Um, there's actually, the biggest one for me is actually the, my review of Daft Punk's um, Discovery. Uh, and like when that came out, um, I was... Were you pissed because they promised they'd come and perform? <laughs> no, And then I wasn't. they didn't come and perform at your <laughs> that office? That didn't happen, unfortunately, quite that, quite that early on. I felt like, I feel like in, in some ways, not a lot of people were actually even reading us at this point. But like... Did um, Robin Thicke show up instead? <laughs> that would have been, you know... That would have been something. No, Robin Thicke didn't show up. Or Stephen Colbert. Nobody. Nobody showed up. You know? Uh, but the... Uh, but the uh, Henry yeah. Kissinger didn't make an appearance. Oh, God. That'd, be, that'd, just, be, that'd just be wild. Um, I think that uh, the, that review, I wrote it, and then I kind of like sort of, uh, even as the week went on, I was listening to it more and more and going back to it and starting to like it more and more. So my review had already run, and then I'm still like warming up to the record and engaging with it. And by the end of the summer, it was like one of my favorite albums of that year. By the end of the, the decade, it was like one of my favorite albums of the decade. I gave it like a six. I was like, eh. You know? And so, like, what happens to, are you able to see, like, a direct link to sales? Like, when you champion a band that you really like, like, let's say Arcade Fire. Yeah. Um, did you see, uh, can you say, like, I know that this helped their sales by doing this, by giving them a high score? It's always hard to say. I mean, there's a, there's, in some cases, there's a direct correlation, or it seems like there's a, a, a pretty solid correlation. But, you know, I, I guess I don't tend to be that sales-minded in terms of, like, paying attention to the sales figures and charts and that kind of, so who that do, kind of thing. So who does the charting, who does the charting help? Um, and by the way, that is not a phrase in the English. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> the charting helps the, the industry. You know, uh, uh, I mean, you know, primarily. And by industry, who? So, like, by, by having these numbers there, the mm. same way that, and again, this is, you know, film when they have four stars or five stars or restaurants. Yeah. Just curious for music, like, who benefits from that number that's assigned to it? Um, are you talking ratings-wise or chart-wise? Yeah, rating-wise. I apologize. I'm sorry to be unclear. Oh, no, so, when, yeah. you, when you review an album, let's say you're reviewing... Um, I don't know, the new Emmylou Harris album. Yeah. And you give it, a, I'm just going to give it an 11 since that's not on your chart. Sure, card. yeah. Um, who does that number benefit? Well, I think it, it can benefit a number of different people. I mean, for me, to look outside that and go, well, are we benefiting the artist by doing this? What you know effect is this going to have on the artist? This isn't where I come from when, when we're when we're putting these things together and when we're, we're writing, and it's not, not, not the reason that I started Pitchfork. I mean, I started Pitchfork in a lot of ways because there was um, a lack of, of interest or a lack of knowledge about independent music in the greater world. Independent music, when I started Pitchfork, was very niche, a very small world. You had to read, you know, zines and, and listen to college radio to find out anything about it. But not a lack of interest. I mean, it was like 
totally interesting to all these people. They just weren't connected. Like I feel like at yeah. all these college radio stations across the country and all these small little record stores yeah. across the country. It was still a niche world. You know what I mean? It, w it was still much smaller yeah. than it is now. now but there was no connection. That's true. Yeah. Between them. But like, yes, it will always be a niche world yeah. in that sense. But sure. like, I feel like there the idea that there are record stores all over the place where there are kids who are just obsessed with music yeah. and college radio stations where they have DJs who are just so thrilled. This is the best yeah, part yeah. of their college is there. And this was the first time that all of these people were suddenly connected. Right, completely. Yeah, and I think that um, you know a lot of that sort of happened in some ways, some of it happened through Pitchfork because we were one of the first on the web to uh, to be writing about these artists. I mean, when I started it, you could literally search for like the replacements or Fugazi, and there's just no results. There was like nothing. It was that early on. So Fugazi um, was my high school band. Just saying, no big uh, deal. Yeah, that's anyway. right. Yeah, DC. Um, nope. So you didn't uh, you didn't go to school with Ian or anything like that? I guess they're years beyond. Yeah, I'm I'm 23, so I didn't know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yes. No. 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 Yes. I I did not. I was a little bit younger, but I did go see their shows all the time. Yeah, they were great. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, that's why I started because I wanted to kind of uh, bring more focus to this and and kind of and I felt like also at the time like there was you know all this alternative radio was like kind of the post Nirvana era and all the uh, the mainstream radio was playing kind of like alternative and indie stuff and then it just sort of started to like mutate and you started to get your, like your Candlebox, Collective Soul, and like all these things that weren't really independent artists just being sort of sandwiched in there and so for me it was like well okay the, this was almost happening in a mainstream way but like um, you know and now they're not playing like things like I think they should play like Stereo Lab and Elliot Smith and that kind of stuff you know and I just wanted essentially started Pitchfork being like okay well we need to separate what's real music what's good music from what's what does not. that mean what's real music and what's good music um, I just meant like where my mentality was at the time. I was very like I feel like if you're independent and you know you know there's there's it's it's sort of difficult to articulate what is the difference between a band like Collective Soul or you know or some some band like that versus like a Fugazi or Stereo Lab or something like that. You know I mean it's sort of an approach and values and. And, and an aesthetic. But even in the band's lifetime, it gets confusing. So like take Vampire Weekend, like when they yeah. first started, they're an independent group. Yeah. By the time they're like graduating from Columbia and they're on SNL, yeah. To me, they no longer seem indie. At that right. point, they seem that they're like quite mainstream, or at yeah. least they have the main, main, enough mainstream street cred. Yeah. So I think that even that concept of like independent is feels so confusing. Yeah, it is. It is confusing, especially at this point. It was always confusing, but it's more confusing now. I think than it ever was. I think much more so now because the music industry collapsed in on itself and I feel like you came about at this desperate time in the music industry when yeah. like you can no longer take seriously music criticism that's coming from mainstream sources because a lot of that's just straight PR people writing fluff pieces. Yeah. Um, and then simultaneously, you know, a lot of people are leaving their record labels or getting pushed off them. Right. I think and it helped that we came from a very, like, outsider perspective. Like, we weren't critics. We were, like, zine kids. You know what I mean? So, like, we didn't really even take the idea of writing seriously. We're, like, we're just, like, joking and, like, you know, putting something together that, like, while we have a point about music and we care about music, for us it wasn't really about... Um, 
you know, like actually trying to be good writers. It was trying to be entertaining and trying to be like funny with it, but also, but also coming at it from from an outsider perspective, where we can even go like, okay, all this sort of world of music criticism, like that's in your spin, Rolling Stone. That's like all this major stuff. Like, you know, all these writers kind of collaborate, and there's all these there's writers who write for several publications, and it's hard to kind of escape that sort of uh, critical. Um, kind of bubble. I don't get that. Explain, explain what you mean. What I mean is like you have with, with those like essentially I was coming from outside the critical bubble is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like, when you first started. Yeah, then. right. I was reading a lot of criticism but in my mind I was going okay that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong or this is right, this is right. You know and, um, and I think that our perspective on what was the best music. For example when we do our best albums of the 90s or the 80s or whatever you know we, we were always putting out these lists that were kind of like defining what our canon was. You know it was like defining what our taste in music is and how that separates us from other people. And there were things in there that, that we loved that were critically revered at the time, but also sort of outshone by lar kind of larger artists. And so, you know, we would come out and say, like, okay, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless is the best album of the 90s. And we were, like, the only people who were doing that, or, like, saying, like, David Bowie's Low is the best album of the 70s. These are critically but that's, canonized albums. That's already. where I get confused. Like, I've, I've read a quote from you of, you know, Pitchfork is, Pitchfork is not afraid to risk championing New bands in a way that print publications can't or won't, yeah. and I don't, I don't see that. I mean, I, I think that in a reviewer at the New York Times or uh, Rolling Stone or the New Yorker would argue that they do the same thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that they. I think they do to an extent, but it's not so much... I think you're going to have to retract the quote. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I definitely see a difference in our approach. Um, and I think that, you know, everybody does try to do that. What is? What is the... Can you, can you articulate what the difference is? Um, I guess I feel that... Um, um, I guess I really feel that, like, we are coming from a place where... Um, uh, you know, I, I I don't know if I can necessarily articulate exactly like you know I'm not because I'm not totally even clear on what you said with the supposed question initially. Was. Well, just that like I don't really get what the difference in your criticism versus um, a critic at an equally thoughtful publication is. How is that different? How is that reviewer different well, than a reviewer in Pitchfork? Now that you are part of the establishment, I get at the beginning you were you were definitely yeah, not part of the establishment. Sure. But now you are. You are the establishment. Well, yeah, but I also think that, you know, we have sort of a group of writers, and we all kind of convene and talk about music. We all trade music. And I think that, you know, how we're different from somebody like the New York Times, I think, is really just a matter of perspective and a matter of taste. And I think that we collectively have a different, uh, different approach to music. And I think that in a lot of ways that um, we... Uh, we essentially kind of, um, you know, if you read Pitchfork on a day-to-day -day basis, you can kind of follow along and see what bands we're into and where we're sort of going with things. You can't really necessarily predict whether an album is going to get uh, high marks, but you can kind of see our enthusiasm or lack thereof if you're following on a day-to-day -day basis. And I do think that, like a lot of other critics, um, you know, follow along and follow that and are interested in music and so naturally follow Pitchfork in the same way that we follow a lot of other music media as well. But like, I think that, um, I think, you know, for us, it's very much about going to a very, uh, 
like grassroots sort of level and going beyond things that are like label and PR while all of that stuff is sort of, you know, a part and parcel of, of uh, music media, um, you know, we definitely try and dig down and, and represent and champion that? things that other people are not uh, seeing or missing. How, how do you do that? Well, essentially how we do that is by, you know, I mean, it could be any, any number of ways, but like, um, you know, I go out and I see live music like three or four times a week. And Still? Yeah. I mean, partly just because I love seeing live music and I love seeing bands and seeing, you know, how, how, they, how they perform. Um, because that's an aspect to it, too, that you can't really necessarily capture on a record or know on a record. But, like, um, I do think that, um, you know, just by sort of virtue of us really going and, and, and kind of, I mean, we have like a, a, a staff of about 50 people and then another staff of contributors of about 50 people. So, and we're always talking about and trading music, right? And there's everybody at Pitchfork, we all like sort of the broader, the broader kind of stuff that connects everybody. And then everybody has their own sort of niche kind of, um, kind of music or style of music that they're really into and super knowledgeable about. So we all have people who are really into electronic and dance, techno, people are really into like rap, people are really into, you know, we all like all these all these genres together collectively, but for, for one type of music fan, that, that might just be really their thing and they just go deeper than anybody else. And so- How many of your reviewers are under the age of 30? Um, I guess statistically, I'm not sure, but I would guess I would estimate about half. Okay, and about yeah. how many are women? Um, I guess um, it's probably something like- Seven. No, no, uh, there's something like, I would say something like 30% or something, 35, but at the same, but also that we have, um, but the, the majority of the bylines on everything that we publish, if you take all of our articles together, is actually um, more, more women than men on bylines. Because our news Why section is, is entirely staffed, almost entirely staffed by, uh, by women. And I think, and this is a recent, not like a necessarily a totally recent development, but it's just like as we're bringing in more people to hire, like, I don't know, there's just, there's been so many great female voices in writing. And um, awesome. we just keep trending towards that. So like, that's a, that's a growing number. That's amazing. Um, how do you decide which bands to review and, and even like which albums of those bands? Like I, I brought up Emmy Lou Harris before and I was curious like why certain albums were chosen and others. For, I'm sorry, I missed that before. How do you choose which bands yeah. that you're putting, our performers, mm -hmm. that you're going to review? Oh, well, uh, that's like an editorial process. And again, a lot of things are pitched by the writers. Um, so we basically have editors assigning certain things that are kind of major, things that we know we, we need to cover. And um, we're always having a dialogue about music at the same time. Like I said, we have sort of like, you know, a sort of staff area where, um, like staff web board, where we all kind of convene and talk about music and talk about like our thoughts on it and things like that. And um, and so we're always kind of engaging on this stuff. And so uh, there's there are things that sort of float to the top or things that seem relevant or things that are good but are niche, hyper niche in like very, very small worlds. Um, and we just try to, to cover what we feel is most relevant and what is most interesting. Are they, are they sent to you by publicists or by labels? Like how does a band who's not represented by either a you know, PR team or a, a label, 
how do they get? Well, we're work? always, I mean, we're listening to music from all different kinds of sources at this point. I mean, there what is the an sources? element. Well, for example, SoundCloud and Bandcamp are two big resources for us right now um, because they're, they allow artists to upload their own music, create artwork for it and just kind of present it to people and just put it out there. And some of them have publicists and a lot of them don't. A lot of them are just people in their bedrooms. And um, a lot of them, you know, a lot of other bands will just be like sort of punk bands who are just coming up within a certain scene. And, you know, they're not established yet. They're, in a lot of cases, the bands are so new that, they're, that they don't even have publicists yet. So it's, for us, it's really just like being on a ground level, I mean, and, and paying attention to what's happening down there as well as what's happening up here in the world that everybody's paying attention to. Do you still feel like the outsider even though you're, you're sort of the, the quintessential I guess, you sort of really can't take that out of a person, you know? I mean, I guess I do. It's, um, uh, it's, it's really odd because I think that, um, you know, I guess I feel that I've always been, um, I've always had a, a kind of an approach that I felt was like different from a lot of other people, but um, yeah, I mean, an outsider, I don't know. That's very difficult to, to kind of put into context, but I think that, um, you know. It's not that difficult. I mean. I guess. I feel like I have a little bit of a different approach, whether I'm an outsider at this point. I definitely still relate more to outsiders than I do insiders, and I still desire being, to, to be an outsider more so than an insider, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I don't know exactly what you meant, but I meant more that like at one point you really were this indie site and now you really are, um, I mean, it's the same way I, I'm in comedy. It's the same thing that like alternative comedy used to be genuinely alternative and now it's actually like yeah. the mainstream comedy. Yeah. Well, I mean, as much as there are artists who are like the Arcade Fire or like Vampire Weekend or just, you know, these enormously popular bands, you know, if you go through like Best New Music, we champion a lot of things that are very much outsider type music. You know, I mean, there's artists like One Tricks Point Never, whose shirt I'm wearing right now. And there's people like, you know, um, like Julia Holter and uh, Juliana Barwick. These are like very sort of avant-garde um, artists. And, um, and that's something that I think is, uh, is underrepped and undervalued because it is sort of, you know, uh, it, it's sort of like, it, it's not music that's necessarily for everybody. Um, but it is really important to recognize music that's great on its own level and not just going, this is for everybody or this isn't for everybody, you know? And I think that a lot of publications really do that to an extent. I mean, that they will kind of um, not necessarily rec um, recognize these artists because either they just don't connect with them or they don't. Which um, publications are you referring to? I don't, I don't know, just general like music publications, you know, the broader sort of larger music publications that are out there. Which are those? I don't know. I mean, you know, they're. they're I'm genuinely asking because <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, you don't. You don't know what music. What music publication? I mean, I don't, I don't, it's, it's such a general comment that's like saying, I don't know what specifically, who you're specifically referring to, <laughs> yeah. so I don't have. A... Okay. Um, okay, well, let's take Rolling Stone as an example, okay. right? You're not going to, you're not going to be reading, if you are, if you read about it, it's going to be something that's like, you know, three or four sentences, but it is, uh, is this really left of center music that, that uh, is is very interesting to me, and I think is interesting to a lot of people, and it just doesn't get covered in a lot of, in a lot of places. Now, I don't, you know, do I think that this is like, you know, like on a high horse about it? Not really. It's just a matter of like where where we differ from a lot of other publications. I think. 
I've never seen so much criticism of criticism before until Pitchfork, <laughs> and it's like, I find yeah. it like interesting, like there were like so many podcasts that I was listening to where the people were just like talking about you and your cat, and I was just curious like how it feels to have all these people have so many thoughts and emotions about you and your <laughs> work, yeah. even though like you and your work is meant to be like critiquing other work. Yeah. I think it's actually really a positive thing. There was a long time where I was sort of conflicted about it and didn't feel totally great about it. And at this point, I really feel like it's inter essentially music criticism is, is meant to start a dialogue. You know what I mean? Like it's meant for people to kind of process and then have their own opinions. Anytime you go out and have like a very strong opinion one way or the other on something, you know, if people see that, a lot of people are going to agree with it, which a lot of people do. A lot of people are going to disagree with right. it. Right. Have you ever changed what you say because of it as a result? No, I, I don't think we have. I mean, in terms of like, yeah, I, I, I think we try to be as like honest with ourselves and with our readers at all times as we can be. But you haven't taken any of the feedback and been like, you know what, that's, that's a good point. Well, I mean, if I'm trying to think of specific examples, I don't know if I could name any, but certainly, like, you like read that much criticism, and you might go, okay, well, maybe that's a, that's, a good, that's a good point or that's a good perspective. What about a review of a Kanye West album? Oh, I would not take back a single one of those. <laughs> um, in the beginning, how did your site make money? Uh, it didn't make money for several years. Um, it actually, for the first four years, we didn't make any money at all. And then this site called InSound, which is an online record store, came to us and asked us if we could put a banner ad on our site. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds like advertising to me. What do you want to do? And so we actually, we had an arrangement where they were suddenly paying us to advertise on our site. And I was like, all right, now we're kind of getting there. Because that was always sort of my vision for the site in the, in the very beginning. It's like, well, there's only one way to support this, which is through advertising. Um, and so um, I just felt like if we kept working at it, eventually people would start reading it. And from there, we could just sell advertising. But when, when we first started advertising, I mean, I guess I started in 96. And then um, around 99 was the year that I really had to take had to take advertising seriously and had to start working on it because Why I needed then? to live, basically. Got it. Um, <coughs> And, uh, and so I was, um, so in order to make a living, I was like, well, I don't have a fallback plan. It's either, it's either try and sell the ads and make a go of this or, you know, or quit doing it. So I started kind of reaching out to, like, for the most part, it was like venues, record labels, like just general, like, you know, people that you'd see advertise in any magazine or any, like, punk zine or whatever. And I would hit them up with just, like, you know, rates or whatever. And so we, we just started making, uh, it, it didn't really pay the bills uh, at all. I mean, until probably maybe 2001 or something. But how I did, really How struggled. did you support yourself? I mean, I did support myself through it, um, but just barely. And I did have to be bailed, bailed out by my poor parents one time. So <laughs> I'm asking because of starting a site, too. And, you know, and I'm just trying to figure out because it's, it's similar in that, like, you know, you were obviously this kid who was in love with music and started yeah. writing about music and then there's this transition to like a business person. Yeah. Well, and that's really interesting because for the the business angle, like business, I, in some ways I'm business development, but I don't run numbers. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't. Uh, okay. So fortunately, like I don't have, like fortunately, like advertising was the first thing that I wanted to give up. Like if I was like, okay, my first employee, the first, first thing they're going to do is sell ads because I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to focus on this. Um, and I'm not really very... Uh, business oriented. I don't read a lot of like business publications. It's just business is not a world that I'm really interested in. You don't wear slacks. 
No, not really. Yeah, I wear, you know, camo, camo sh cargo shorts, I guess. Uh, but like, um, yeah, it's it's not just not like a world Golf. that I'm really that interested in or, or something that I'm very passionate about. Um, and so. Um, and so I really try to deal with as little of that as is reasonably possible because I'm much more driven by being involved in the day-to-day -day on like editorial, but also kind of like new projects. You know, I started uh, when I moved to, to New York in 2007, I started Pitchfork TV. How come you how come you moved it to Brooklyn to do the video stuff here? Well, it was mostly a personal decision. I didn't move it. Like the office remained in Chicago and I moved. So... Um, and for me, it was just I'd been in Chicago for like eight years, and there's just not that many opportunities to see artists there. There are, you, but you know, it's not like something like New York where you have like 10 options in a night of something that you would go see, you know? Um, and so, so part of it was that, and, I, and also just kind of the opportunities that are, are inherent in any new city. So I was just kind of like, and I was really sick of how cold it gets, right? Like I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Minnesota, and just like the winters, just they never end. It's like all your life you're in darkness and, and freezing cold. So I was just like, I mean, New York is not, does not by any means have, have like super temperate mild winters, but comparatively they do. So, does New York sustain the same kind of music scene it once did? I think it, you know, like anything, it kind of goes through phases, right? Uh, you'll have phases where it's super dominant and you'll have phases where it's like doing kind of its own thing. Um, but, you know, I think just in terms of like influence, the city is, is pretty, um, manages to keep things uh, thriving and interesting. Between like New York and LA, is there, or does it not function that way? I don't know if it, it functions as much that way. Okay. I mean. I guess I think that um, New York is in a kind of a little bit of a lull for rock music, even though I do think there's like a, a ton of great bands here. Um, I think that, you know, in like 2007, 2008, like when I actually first moved here, I like came into the scene, there was this huge world of DIY, like communities and DIY uh, venues. And every night there was just some cool punk show with some band that everybody really wanted to see. And and a lot of that was local. and um, And... And I guess over the past couple of years, like it's just sort of, you know, like I said, it's, it goes through waves. And right now things are kind of shifting uh, in New York and in that world to more of like electronic dance, techno, like that kind of thing. So it's mutating. Um, and, and that world is really starting to be like super interesting here. There's all kinds of electronic techno producers who are coming out of here. Who, who are you particularly excited about? Well, I think that um, with, with like, it's more like there's there's kind of venues popping up, right? Like there's venues that are kind of, I mean, which venue? There's one called Output, which is really only about six months old, but it's like in uh, Williamsburg, um, and and basically it's like it's got like a really amazing sound system. It's got probably the best sound system that I've heard in New York, to be honest. And it's like the vibe isn't always exactly great, but like they the booking is really good, and they get things that are really left of center that are just straight, like uh, you know, appealing kind of like the techno world. But I mean, I think that. Um, you know, there's a there's a guy here named Anthony Naples who's like just a great DJ, and um, there's people who have always kind of been part of the the fabric of that world from like all these dance clubs in the in the last decade. Um, and that's the new subgenre. It's you sort of like that to me. It just seems like that's where the energy is right now, like in New York specifically, not necessarily uh, worldwide or anything. And like that. And what about worldwide? But, that's interesting. Well, you know, it, there's never really like a worldwide 
you know, feel. I mean, if you're going to say there's one thing that's worldwide, it's probably EDM or something, which I'm not less interested in. But like there's... Um, what are other subgenres that are interesting you and, and bands that are interesting you or singers? I don't know. Always going everywhere. Like I like, I like, I like to pay a lot of attention to everything all at once. But um, I mean, I guess the, the sort of techno thing is, is really interesting to me just because I feel like there's sort of new, new uh, sounds happening there. Like I feel like those artists are kind of pushing things forward in a way that's sort of going to be influencing people who are doing more rock and pop stuff, um, you know, in a couple of years. Basically, I think that um, that the, the techno is like is a world unto itself. Like you have indie rock, which goes super deep, and then you have techno and metal and rap and all these things. They all go like really, really deep, but you get really into it. And, and um, techno has always been sort of... Um, in the U.S. especially, I feel like techno has always been sort of marginalized. It's always been a matter of scenes, like uh, you know Detroit techno and Chicago house, and there's these 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 things that are are the genres are almost defined by cities because that's how sort of how sort of splintered it's been. But, Going back to the the business stuff, because I was so impressed on your site, like. I love everything from the animated shorts to like, you used to have that point of view with the, the six cameras. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and then it was like, I mean, it's not, obviously a lot of sites have that, but the fact that you had a user, that the user could figure out which angle they yeah, wanted to be from, yeah. like, who's doing all that stuff? Who's, who's coming up with these different sort of like, just creative takes on like, what's the traditional inter interview? Yeah. Um, well, that the POV was an idea that um, our sort of executive producer of Pitchfork TV came up with, and they found a way to, to do it and execute it. But there's other things too. There's the things like cover stories is one of the things that we're doing recently, and it's like hard to people, you know, what's what's a cover story on the internet? And essentially, it's something that sort of pops up when you come to the site um, for like a few days in a row. And there will be these big features that are kind of like full bleed in your entire browser. They take you outside of the structure of the site. And the one that most people have seen, not to bring back to Daft Punk, but Daft Punk was probably the one that people saw more than more than in any of the others. And that... Um, and it's it's these large features that are laid out like magazine pieces, but they have like animations and all kinds of things that you can only do on the web. So it's like, and and that was an idea that I've had for years. And finally, kind of the technology caught up, and we had the resources to do it. So that Pitchfork Advance, which is like playing uh, advanced music um, or or streaming uh, albums like the week before they come out, and then creating a presentation that's also like that. It's a full bleed, full browser type type experience where you can look through the artwork and that kind of stuff. And that's sort of like, that's where I, like, that's that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And like, is that what you enjoy the most now? Yeah, I like, I mean, I like to be able to be creative and to be able to do things that that other people aren't doing and kind of taking advantage of, of the medium and trying to push things in a new direction. I mean, that's what I always respect with music, with people, uh, with artists kind of trying to do something that hasn't been done before. And so I, I respect that, but I also try to try to, to live up to that, you know? How how much, like, when you talk about, you know, having someone else focus on the advertising and dealing with the business stuff, yeah. how much of the business stuff do you deal with? Um, not as little as possible. I'm going to say it's yeah. it's not it's not a ton actually. I mean, I'm 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 involved in that to to the extent that I need to be and I'm comfortable with. But um, it's really not you know it's it's 
it really, for the most part, that's kind of the domain of Chris Kasky, who's our president, kind of my right-hand dude. And we've, um, and we've been working together since 2004 and are super close and really on the same page about like everything. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of like that, that type of stuff, you know, for me, I can be creative and he can be the numbers guy and go, okay, this is how we're going to make this work, you know, from like, uh, from an actual business perspective. Why did you choose Paris for one of your festivals? Chicago, I get, but why did you choose Paris for yeah. one of your festivals? Um, I, we like Paris a lot. I, me and Chris both do. and um, I do too, if you guys need someone to come with it's you. It's an guys. amazing city. It's a really incredible city. And also, it felt like there, I mean, it had sort of a small kind of music festival community going on there. It has good music festivals, but it's not like super dominated, saturated, like, uh, you know, something like London, which would be sort of the logical next place to take it, I guess. Um, and we thought, well, we wanted to start it somewhere else, and we felt like we could do kind of a similar thing, but but also kind of um, shift it and have it be a different feel. And I felt like um, Paris, to me, it's also like a city of, of um, I don't know, they, uh, it's, it's, it's a city that doesn't really accept anything less than like, the best that you can give it. You know what I mean? That I seems like, like a cliche. I don't know. It if that's is true. kind of though. What I mean is, it's sort of an elitist city, and it's and I, I kind of relate to of. that. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, it's I don't know. I, I I like I just I like the the vibe of it, and I like the feel of it, and um, and I like being able to to present something there that is um, that that's that's. Highly regarded, I guess. I like your contradictions. On one end, you like being part of the sort of elitist <laughs> group, and then on the other end, you're like, I'm an indie, an outsider. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a different. It's like an indie elitism, I guess, right? Isn't yes, it, isn't I, that, I, that's a that's its own thing. It's my my <laughs> my whole whole life of the you know. I, I, bougie yeah, I always kind was, of thing. you know, even uh, I don't know, just as a kid, like. I, it's just like having high standards. You know what I mean? That's it. Just not being easily pleased. That's it. Now, the other thing I thought was so uh, sort of sweet is, is, you know, you'll hear about brilliant musicians or brilliant anyone that they were playing instruments when they were three years old. Yeah. But you've spoken about even, like, listening to music with such intensity as a three-year-old. I thought that oh, was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really since the the time that I was like a little kid, like really as early as I can remember, I just, all I wanted to do was listen to music. And my parents have all these stories about, you know, about me just never seeing me because I was always in my room, like at a record player. And they would, they actually I think they really worried that I was like, you know, there was something wrong with me or and something. And now they know there is, right? But now they know there is. <laughs> but you can get paid for it, which is yeah. great. Right, exactly, which they were always very concerned about. They did not get this internet thing. Um, but, like, yeah. Was the, that hard, not getting that validation from them? No, not really. Um, no, it wasn't It wasn't really that difficult. Like, because I, I, I was sort of driven. Mind. Like, you just, you kind of have your vision, and you're like, no, I'm going to do this, and I know what I'm doing. And, you know, they were like, well, you should get a real job. So I got, you know, I worked at a record store. To me, that was a real job, you know? Which one did you work at? Um, I worked at... Uh, I worked at my first one was uh, was actually a music was like a Sam Goody when it was still called Musicland in the Mall of America, nice. and um, my second one was at a record store called Down in the Valley in Golden Valley in Minnesota, um, so western suburbs. But like, 
Um, yeah, and so they, but you know, I've, I've always really loved, loved listening to music since I was a little kid, and I've always been obsessed with it. It was all that I really cared about. Like I had friends, you know, a little bit, but it was always sort of like, I was always trying to get people to listen to music. You know what I mean? Like I was always kind of evangelizing for the stuff that I liked, and it definitely made me a weird kid. Like I was a weirdo, there's no doubt about it. And like, um, you know, I was always watching MTV and listening to Top 40 Countdowns. How do people make a living as a music reviewer, like? Well, it's, I, I mean, like anything, but especially music critics, like I didn't make a living when I first started it. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's something that I came to with no, no uh, expectations, no resources, and no experience at all, and just entered into it and was just doing it for the love of it because I loved doing it and loved, and, and, and then people sort of started to recognize or start to notice me, and at that point then I was able but to kind so of it's so different that. now. It's such a different world now because websites pay so little compared to you know print magazines and things like that. I, yeah. mean, I, I freelanced for a long time and yeah. I could easily make a living, and now it's much harder. And right. Like here's $200 and here's $50 and here's $100. Yeah. And yeah. You know, it's like there's cobbling it all together is quite challenging. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's certainly more challenging. I mean, there's a lot. You could say the same thing from like an artist perspective. How do you make money off music in a world where you can't sell albums? You know what I mean? Like yeah. everything is right of, now. Everything's about concert tickets. Isn't yeah, it? right. It's like you just kind of have to like. Uh, I mean, in in some ways, it sort of like separates it, it and and kind of like isolates people so that it's a matter of you know, you really have people doing it for the love of it and for being passionate about it. And those people do get noticed. I mean, we're always reading Tumblrs and all these other types of things. Like, we find writers in all kinds of places. And a lot of the writers do have experience with other publications, but many of them don't. And it's like, if you're on Twitter, it's just like getting people to notice you. It's saying something interesting, saying something yeah. different, having good insight, having uh, interesting perspective. A good beard helps. Yeah, okay, yeah, maybe. I guess I don't even know what people look like for the most part when, you know, over like most reviewers have beards. What's the ratio on your staff of oh, beard to mustache? Know. That's actually not a ton of beards in the office, you know? Really? Now that I'm thinking about in the office itself. Uh, oh, because they're, they're at home. They're at home. They're more feral. More, yeah, they might be more feral, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of beards. Oh, there's a lot of beards around now anyway, isn't I, there? I blame Pitchfork for that. Oh, definitely. well, I'll take, I'll take. I'll take the um, how did you branch out into film? Because now Dissolve is such a great site as well, and it seems like it's staffed mainly from the AV club. Well, yeah, and this actually, um, so Chris is, was very tight with Keith Phipps, who is the editor in chief, and um, they uh, they'd known each other for a long time. And I've always had like I've always loved the Onions, um, like, like the AV club and and the the movie critics, especially. I've been reading Scott Tobias, who's an editor for us there now for years and just always loved his stuff. And so um, essentially they had um, wanted to do something a little bit different than what they were than what they were doing at the AV club and I guess they didn't really have the resources that they wanted to well, do. Well the onion it. also went through a terrible Yeah, time. exactly. So the onion just sort of had, you know, um, where I feel like all these wonderful writers on both sides, the AV club and the humor writers were just not treated with the respect they deserve by the business folks. Yeah, I guess. I mean, and I feel like they they wanted to, to do something a little bit different. They kind of, um, and, and so we kind of were bouncing these ideas around, but it just sort of eventually became clear that, 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 that Keith was gonna leave the AV club either way. Like he was basically done. And um, he wanted to keep doing what he does. 
And so we started talking about, well, you know, for me, because I've always been 100%, my head 100% in music. Like, I mean, I, I would go to see movies. I like movies, but, but I'm not just passionate to, about them. You and were I just listening to the score. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. No, and I, I couldn't, you know, write, um, you know, I couldn't write a movie review to save my life. So it was never something that I wanted to sort of intentionally expand into personally. But, you know, knowing him and, he, and, and kind of going, okay, well, Keith wants to start this site. We can kind of do something together with kind of combining our resources. Um, and, and that's just sort of how it came together. It made sense to me. Who do you feel has parodied you better, The Onion or Portlandia? Oh, boy, that's tough because those are both great. Um, I think Portlandia was just awesome. I was so happy about that. Um, and we've, we've actually, um, I, I've kind of have known Fred a little bit, more like acquaintances, we're not really close or anything, but we worked on uh, some stuff where Pitchfork TV together in the very beginning before he became like the sort of central dude on SNL, like he was just sort of in the circle. Well, because he's also a musician. Yeah, right, exactly. And so, um, so yeah, uh, I, had, I had his phone number in my phone, he had mine, but I, I hadn't texted him or talked to him in a while. And all of a sudden I get a text from Fred Armisen, I'm like, what? why is Fred Armisen texting me? He's like, yo, turn on your TV in like half an hour because I'm, gonna, I'm doing something about you on, pitch, on, on Portlandia. And I was like, okay, well this should be interesting. Turn it on and he's like imitating me. And I'm like, that's so amazing. He's got like, I've got like a look, I guess, like a beard and like, I don't know what. Like he had, he had a whole outfit and he's kind of raising his voice. He's like, hey guys, you know, we have to shut down the internet. And it's like, I don't know if I talk like that, but I really I enjoyed it, man. I thought it was super fun. I was rolling. It was hilarious. It's that I love that show. But the Onion one is so good too. Pitchfork gives music a six point eight. It's great. I I I would have done a tie, but I think that it's important to choose, <laughs> and that's what Pitchfork does best. Is they they. I'm gonna say the Portlandia one was better because it was just a little bit more involved. They were both fabulous. This was such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thanks um, so much. Thank you so much, Ryan Shriver. And I would encourage everyone to check out Pitchfork, although they already do. So I will tell them <laughs> to also check out The Dissolve. All right, indeed. Thanks. Thank thanks so you. Much. Congratulations on your award. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Employee of the Month. I want to thank Joel Arnold. I want to thank all of you for listening. and want to ask that if you can, definitely donate. You can donate at employeeofthemonthshow.com. Again, that's employeeofthemonthshow.com. Donate 20 bucks. That's lunch. That is one lunch for the day. Um, and it can even be two lunches for the day, actually, if you get Thai food. In fact, that could be lunch and dinner. I mean, you don't need to eat two lunches in the day. So you could get like two Thai food lunch specials and then have one for dinner. And look what you've done. You've fed, you've fed a talk show host for the day. Um, definitely do it. Definitely check out more episodes. Subscribe on iTunes. And much more importantly, try to enjoy your job. And if you don't enjoy it, try to figure out what it is that you want to be doing with your life because this is all the time you've got. This is all the time we've got uh, until the next episode. 